Welcome to Agents of Tech, our brand new science and technology podcast. I'm your host, Atria Godfrey. And I'm Stephen Horn. Together, we are looking at exciting new technologies shaping our world today, from big data and quantum computing to AI and robotics. Agents of Tech delves into science and technology and looks at how they could transform our lives in the future. Each episode features in-depth interviews with leading experts in the field, discussing the latest developments and their potential to improve our lives. Whether you're a tech enthusiast or just curious about the future, Agents of Tech is for anyone interested in the intersection of technology and society and where this might lead. So, Autria, I know you've been on your travels yet again. Where have you been? Well, Stephen, I've been in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States, at the National Science Teachers Association Annual Conference. Created by educators and for educators, the NSTA is the world's largest professional organization representing science educators. Teachers can explore best practices and next-level engagement approaches for inspiring students in science and STEM. I also caught up with Johns Hopkins professor Dr. Rama Shalapa while I was there to talk with him about how artificial intelligence is changing the game inside the classroom and, maybe more importantly, whether or not it can be trusted. But first, talk about a personal highlight for me. I had the opportunity to speak with NASA astronaut Megan MacArthur. Have you ever wondered what it's like to try to conduct science experiments in outer space? We've got someone here in studio who actually knows. Joining us now is NASA astronaut Megan MacArthur, along with NASA's K-12 education advisor, Cindy Hasselbring. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks. Megan, I want to get started with you. Now, in total, you have spent more than 200 hours in outer space. Can you talk a little bit about some of the various missions that you've been on? And then, of course, the question that I just have to ask, what's it like in outer space? <laughs> yes, yeah, so on my very first mission, I flew on the Space Shuttle Atlantis to fix the Hubble Space Telescope, and we spent about 13 days in space space. And then my second mission was just in 2021, and we spent 200 days on the International Space Station living and working, conducting science experiments, technology demonstrations, and having a lot of fun. I mean, you're up there for almost a year, you know, creeping up on a year. Do you get <laughs> bored at all? What's it like looking down and seeing Earth? Well, Earth is so beautiful that whenever we did have free time, that is absolutely what we would do, is look out, maybe take pictures of favorite places, you know, wave as you go over your friend's house kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, and you cannot ever get bored of that. Looking at our beautiful planet is just, it's remarkable, and I felt lucky to get the chance to do it. Any of the missions do you hold in a higher regard than the others? Any of them, you know, your favorite, I guess? You know, they were they were very different in a lot of ways. Um, getting to be a part of the Hubble Space Telescope legacy is pretty special. Um, meeting scientists from around the world who use that telescope to do their work, to unlock the mysteries of the universe, getting to be a part of something like that is really fantastic. I'll see articles in the paper, um, you know, about new discoveries made with the Hubble Space Telescope, and I get to think, well, I had a little, I little had a little hand in that. Um, but then being on the space station for 200 days, you're really having the experience of living in the environment, right? It's not like, oh, I did a short business trip to space. No, I'm actually living here. I'm a citizen of right. low Earth orbit. And so that's a, a unique experience in itself. And again, you're helping hundreds of scientists from around the world complete their life's work um, as they send up projects to the International Space Station. So they're different, but I, I love them both equally. That's what people say about their children, that's right? right? Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about some of the science experiments that you conducted. And did anything turn out differently than you expected maybe went awry? 
Um, well, certainly, so we're kind of the hands and eyes for the scientists that are on the ground. And oftentimes we don't see the results for many years of the work that they're doing. And they're, they're doing an experiment maybe every year and they're building on the results that they've gotten before. So it's fun to see, you know, over time what those results are as they come out. But certainly sometimes you have an experiment um, that's not working or you're not able to do the work exactly in the way you've been instructed to do it. We're fortunate that we have an expert sort of looking over our shoulder via camera, somebody on earth that's helping us, you know, work through an experiment. Um, and we can give them feedback as well, like, hey, this task that you wanted me to do, the way you wanted me to mix these liquids, it's not working. And as I'm the expert in the local environment, right, I need to give them feedback on how can we do this better? How can we still get um, the science that you want to get? So I love that collaborative nature of it. it was a lot of fun for me. Interesting. All right, Cindy, let's talk a little bit about your position. You are NASA's K-12 Education Advisor. What does that mean? What do you do? Well, so I work in NextGen STEM, which is our K-12 project within our Office of STEM Engagement. And I serve as an expert in what states are doing in STEM education. And I also lead our educator professional development. So really trying to think what is it that teachers need and how can we support them? And really, you know, for all those, the young boys and girls that say, I want to be an astronaut one day, you are very active in trying to make that a reality. Absolutely. With their curriculum. Absolutely, and I was one of those kids that wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> yes. So it's amazing to sit here next to Megan, actually. Um, so uh, yeah, we so when we talk about Artemis, which is the mission going to the moon and Mars, mm -hmm. we have a number of challenges to really get students' hands dirty, so to speak, and get them involved in helping us solve the challenges that our, our professionals are currently facing. So we have an app development challenge where kids are designing an app that can be used uh, for the Artemis program. Uh, we have Lunabotics, we have human exploration rover challenges. So all those challenges that our professionals are experiencing, we try to get kids to actually be involved in, in how to solve them. And that's something that's actually coming up soon. There's an Artemis announcement coming up, correct? That's right. So on April 3rd, NASA will be announcing the four crew members who will um, fly on the Artemis II mission around the moon in preparation for the Artemis III mission, which will land people on the moon for the first time since 1972. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. And Cindy, I'm sure, you know, when you have real life events happening, you know, in the now, that it's much easier to get students engaged and interested in it. Yeah, I mean, this is a time to be involved in space, right? Yeah. With all of the partners that we have that are helping us in these missions, uh, it's really the time. And, you know, kids, many want to be astronauts, and that's wonderful, but not all are going to be astronauts. But there's a variety of careers, and that's what really what our focus has been, is helping them understand, yes, you can become an astronaut. Here are some things that maybe could help you. But what other places in space are there for students? Federal agencies actually came together uh, per the direction of the National Space Council, which is chaired by Vice President Kamala Harris, and put together a collection of federal resources tied to space STEM careers. And they're a little bit more out of the box. How do you take trash in space and reuse it, recycle it? So there's a number of jobs in there that are just cool. not a normal uh, career path in space that students would think of. So we want them to be thinking about that. No, that their so interests can be a can space tie. trash man. Exactly. <laughs> and and, the, and the, the young lady who had that as a career is 20 something years old wow. and an engineer. And it's just really a really great, it's, a, it's on the Smithsonian Science Education Center webpage under state, space STEM career resources. Very cool. And you know, a lot of um, teachers, I'll also end up 
in these high-level positions as well. Currently, the chief of the astronaut office is a former teacher. That's right. So Joe Acaba was recently named the chief astronaut, and he's flown in space several times, um, and he's currently leading the, the astronaut office. Unbelievable. And you actually are the current chief science officer in Houston. That, what does well, that entail? That's right. So I'm on a rotation to Space Center Houston, which is the Johnson Space Center's official visitor center. So we get visitors from around the world who are interested in learning about space. And I, when I was in space, I really felt like the next thing I wanted to do, I wanted to be involved in outreach and education and how we do informal science education, how we reach people who maybe we didn't reach the first time around when they were in schools. How do we get them back on the pathway? And science centers are a great place to do that, right? Because people are out to have a fun day with their family. And so I ended up speaking with the CEO, William Harris of Space Center Houston about, you know, how could I get involved in this world? And he said, well, come over and work with us right now. You know, so, so I'm over there on a rotation from NASA and the astronaut office has let me do that because we really value that outreach and education. So I get to help support the authenticity of the programming that we do at Space Center Houston. And it's been a tremendous learning opportunity for me because I'm seeing kids of all ages come in for the, for the STEM education, for the formal science programming. But again, I get to see people from around the world who are there just to have fun, but they're also learning something, and I, I love being a part of that. And it's so important. It's it's so important. A uh, question for both of you: What would your advice be, maybe to a teacher, a science teacher who's watching this right now, who has a student who tells them, you know, I want to be, I want to work for NASA one day, I want to be an astronaut one day? How? What would you um, encourage that teacher to do with that student? I think the most important thing is for the student to feel confident in following their passion, right? We like to say that it's not a pipeline, right? It's more of a pathway. So there's not just one right answer into getting into the space industry, getting into NASA, getting to be an astronaut, right? We come from all different kinds of backgrounds with the common denominator, of course, being science, technology, engineering, and math. So helping that student figure out what they're passionate about and what their path looks like rather than trying to maybe copy mine, for example. Cindy, what about you? Yes, I, and I would add to, you know, Megan mentioned that, you know, she spent time in the International Space Station. That's a lot of, that's, you know, a big area, but with limited people, right? So she had to have some social skills <laughs> to, and to get along with people. And, you know, sometimes we don't think about that as much in the classroom, but having students working together in groups, being part of a team is really critical if you become an astronaut or another NASA team member. And then also those technical skills. So if students have an opportunity to become involved in a robotics club or something like that, that might be a good way to get some right. hands-on experience in the classroom or outside of the classroom as, as one option, so. All right, final question for you. The most surprising thing about <laughs> outer space? Well, we spend a lot of time making sure that we don't surprise people when they get to space, right? <laughs> I we guess like, you don't want to be surprised. No, you don't want to be surprised. We like everything to be nominal is a word you hear all the time at NASA. It's nominal. Um, I think for me, the, the thing that um, it wasn't unexpected, like you expect to be amazed by Earth, right? When you see Earth from space, you know it's going to amaze you, but you cannot prepare yourself for the impact that it really has on you, on your mind, on your soul, when you see our beautiful planet from space. And it's, it just never gets old. Any plans for another trip? Well, um, you know, my eight-year-old son says, you know, nobody's going to space anymore, Mommy. We're all done. Um, but you know, you never know. Maybe we'll go on a family vacation sometime to the moon. <laughs> there you go. Maybe so. One of these days. It has been such a pleasure speaking to both of you. Thank, Thank you for your you. time today. Thank you.
Autry, that was literally out of this world. I saw your tweet. You so enjoyed that, didn't you? I really did. This was a bucket list item for me, for sure. And, you know, one of the things that was really interesting about her is I asked her, you know, what was it like getting to be up there? And she was just like a regular person. Obviously, she's a NASA, you know, astronaut. She's beyond brilliant. But she said that she was really taken aback to be hovering up above the Earth. She looked out the window, saw the Earth's curvature, and truly took her breath away. So I just thought that was really interesting that, you know, obviously these astronauts, these NASA scientists, they are brilliant beyond belief. They are so smart. They're incredible at what they do. But once they get up into outer space, Stephen, they're just like regular people. They're just like you and me. And they're in awe of, you know, our Earth. It's incredible. Such a role model though, right? Oh, absolutely. And you want to talk about, you know, being a role model for women in STEM. She's really someone that, you know, young girls can look at look at and aspire to become. So that was, like I said, truly a bucket list item for me. I had to pinch myself at the end of it. <laughs> All right. Like I said, I also spoke to Johns Hopkins professor, Dr. Rama Shalapa, author of the recent book, Can We Trust AI? Seems to me like every day we hear from leaders in the field of artificial intelligence warning of its potential dangers. Yes, you're exactly right. I think that overall, Dr. Shalapa is very positive about the use of AI, especially in medicine and in the classroom. But he does say that it comes with some caveats. Interesting. I'd be really interested to find out what those are. Can we trust AI? The title of your book. What say you? Qualified, yes. Okay, there's a caveat. Yes, there is a caveat because modern day AI very much depends on the quality of data that is given to it. So the data quality is questionable. The inference you make from that data is also questionable. So uh, that's why we have to be careful in how we collect data and how we curate it and, and how much of data is needed for a given problem. All of these are still open questions. But assuming that these things can be done, I think AI will do fine. In fact, I like to say when I think I can trust AI really is when the mapping from data to the decision is unambiguous. Okay. Like, you know, Chalapa's face. Okay, there will be variations in my face, you know, evening shadow, five o'clock shadow, morning bright face or smiley face or, or angry face, whatever. It's all but Chalapa's face, right? All of this data maps onto one label, which is Chalapa. Okay. So all uh, current AI does is it tries to understand how that mapping works. It's like a regression model, we call it in statistics. So to the extent you give anything that looks like my face, it'll say, yeah, that's Chalapa, most of the time. But if I am 1,000 meters from the camera, it's going to be a problem because, you know, there is a lot of turbulence, atmospheric turbulence, and the quality of data won't be good, so it may mistake me for somebody else, right? And people ask me, can we trust AI? My answer is, most part, yes, but be careful that it may actually give some erroneous results, you know, it's possible. When it comes to the amount of information that you feed AI, it's only going to make it more accurate. So the more information it has to pull from, the more the more accurate the answers are gonna be. Can you talk about the explanation you gave one time about how a newborn baby born today, their medical records, they're gonna be much more comprehensive than say yours. Yeah, oh, exactly. I mean, um, yeah, I, I uh, was born in 1953. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple years ago. Right, <laughs> now I think uh, it's possible, um, you know, of course with consent. Uh, you know, in medicine, privacy is understood. You know, when you go to your doctor for the first time, you know, they'll ask you, who can we share your issue? Who can we call? So you give your spouses or your children, or et cetera, et cetera. So, 
anybody calls, they won't say, I'm sorry, you are not on our list of people that we can share, uh, you know, Atria's uh, medical information. So medicine has figured out, you know, how, how to protect uh, information, right? So privacy. So given that, we can now uh, start from a three-month-old baby, you know, immunization record and all of that, and we can keep a profile. And, you know, the kid, kid is healthy, you know, then nothing is to worry about. You just say, yeah, I said, yeah, everything is cool. Uh, but if there are some issues, and then, you know, AI can kind of monitor that. There are blood reports, EHRs or diagnostic images and all of those things. So, see, what happens is if you go and see your doctor, I see my doctor once in, you know, six months for checkup. Mm -hmm. He doesn't exactly remember what happened last time because he has a lot of patients yeah. to take care of. So, they open up my folder and then, oh, okay, we talked about this last time. So, how is it? What is your thing? What do you do? And how do you, et cetera, et cetera. AI can kind of keep track of it in between. And it can kind of alert my doctor, you know, something we are seeing here, which is probably, uh, we want to take a look at it, right? So that is where I think uh, you will see personalized medicine okay. and personalized education. And that is possible now because we have, you know, even personalized uh, education, you know, school records are also private mm -hmm. because, you know, when I work at Hopkins, I cannot reveal anybody's grade willy-nilly, only the student. I cannot even tell the student's parents unless the student has given permission. <laughs> yeah. That's so, fast. I did not realize that. Yeah. So, <laughs> even though know, they're the ones paying the tuition. <laughs> that's right. But still, unless uh, the, the kid says, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. They can't, yeah. So I think what I'm saying is that so privacy is, is a concern, yeah. you know, but I think in certain domains, we are able to you know, make take, take care of that. So this is possible. Personalized medicine right from birth to, you know. Yeah. A great, great use for AI. Um, you talk though about AI in the classrooms and AI in education. What do you think the implications or the impact of AI applications like say uh, chat GPT yeah. might have on say exams or essays? Is AI ever able to be creative? You know, creative is somewhat uh, a relative term, right? Okay. So what I say is that an apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Okay. So AI can only predict based on what it has been given what okay. it has learned you know as I said before it's like a prediction regression model so there is a small possibility it can probably say some you know extraneous things and so, which may be wrong you know okay. that's what we so see. that's where you take it with a grain of salt that's right now chat GPT is an interesting development it's a, what we call as a, a large language models you know training using billions of parameters and looking at everything that's available and it answers your questions now Teachers are genuinely concerned about that, and uh, but I think you can view it as a resource. You know, uh, it has multiple applications. For example, when international students first come to United States, you know, there is some language issue and so forth. They can probably go to ChatGPT and put something in their language, and maybe it'll you know give the uh, whatever they need in English and, and vice versa. That is possible. Um, or, you know, English, the second language, you know, program can probably use to improve writing skills, pronunciation skills, and the grammar, and, and things like that, okay? So, it, it will have those kinds of positive uses. And you can view ChatGPT as in-house teacher, if you want, okay. for certain things, right? But I don't think students should sit with, you know, in front of their computer all the time. They should also read books and do the homeworks and all the traditional stuff. This is an additional resource. It's almost like, uh, you know, a book with a lot of uh, typos. 
Okay, okay. I mean, it's a little bit serious than that. Uh -huh. You know, that book, nobody likes it, but the book still 80% of the time, you know, is okay. okay. So, but I don't think anybody would buy a book with 20% typos, right? They won't. So, ChatGPT can, you know, make stuff up, right? <clears throat> and if you are not in the field, you won't know. So, it has to be used properly, viewed as a resource, viewed as an entertainment thing, you know, and as somebody said, you know, they gave a, a song and they said, you know, write it up like, uh, you know, Johnny Cash style. Okay. Yeah, it may do it for you, or you can say write it like a Beatle. You know, it yeah. may. So these are all fine, but I think it's good. It's available. What I also think is, think of a, 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 a student in a remote part in India or Africa or some other country. They have a library. They have a, one PC, and they somehow they, they are able to do ChatGPT on that. They will be fascinated by that, right? What can they can learn right. about you know geography? And, and history and other things, because there's no need to buy any books and they can use it. So I don't know what ChatGPT will do for kids all over the world, you know, although it may make stuff up. Let's not uh, get too uh, worried about it. Let's see how it plays out, because people who are doing ChatGPT, they are listening, right. they are watching and they are fixing it. So that's what I tell people, AI can be improved, AI can be fixed. So if we utilize AI, whether it be in education or in medicine, as a supplement. Yes, yes. Okay, so yes. continue to use, you know, the tried and true resources yes. that we can go to for, you know, the facts. Yes. But, yes. but definitely utilize AI in yes. a supplemental form. Very much so. For example, physician assistant to a doctor. AI is a software assistant to the yes. doctor. Okay, that's a great way to look at it. I do have this one question because it's something that you mentioned in your book. Um, you do believe that AI can help guard people from harm. However, there are guardrails, and I guess one of my questions, you know, is if AI does have the potential to reinforce negative stereotypes, how do we how do we keep away from that so that we can actually use AI to keep us from harm? Yes, if the uh, you know uh, classic example is the 2018 MIT report that uh, compared the performance of three commercial face recognition algorithms on uh, two sets of data, you know, uh, light-skinned males and females from Norway, dark-skinned males and females from some African countries, to see if gender classification is done properly. And it, it turned out that it didn't work that well for, uh, you know, dark-skinned males and females. But immediately people concluded, oh, it must be because of skin tone and gender. But uh, one of my uh, colleagues, you know, he found out that the hairstyles are very similar because the parliamentarians from Norway were conservative parliaments, close cut, and the African uh, subjects were, you know, telecast people who appear on TV, politicians, and so on. They also had a very close. So there was a little bit more confusion because the hairstyle looked very, very similar also. So there are other factors that contribute. So what we have done is we also built a face recognition system. So we are, we went and very far, checked it, whether it has any bias. We, we saw that it has bias to gender. We saw it has bias to skin tone. Then we came up with new methods to reduce bias. We couldn't make it completely zero, but we reduced the bias. What happens sometimes is there's a trade-off between bias and performance. So, you know, AI algorithm, you know, you have to watch it. Like, if you think it's, it's uh, maybe harmful, we have to go. It has to be continuously probed, continuously evaluated with new data, with new thing. It's it's not like one shot and it comes to you and that's it. 
aren't we still getting patches from Microsoft, security patches, and say you mm -hmm. have to upload it and so forth, right? Okay. I mean, Microsoft has been around for decades, right? right? You, you get the same thing from Apple. Hey, you have to up upgrade your thing right. and this and that security. So AI will be continuously improved. We, we are not going to give you something, you know, and that's it, you go. No, we're going to make it better and better. And any harmful effect that is mentioned should be taken uh, very seriously. Right. So we have to make sure any new technology that we provide doesn't uh, you know, harm anybody, any subgroup of people. It should work effectively for everybody. And similarly to what you were saying earlier, the more data that AI has to pull from, the less likely biases are to yeah. pop up. Yes, okay. we actually saw that when we built a face recognition system using 4.5 million identities, it generalized well to other groups of people very well. So, yeah, it's it's all in the data, you know, the more as the data comes, I think it's going to get Wonderful. Better. So it can be trusted, yes, it's just a work in progress, just like we are. Yes, it's interesting. <laughs> Everybody thinks, you know, AI just came last week. I said AI, uh, you know, if you look at Turing's paper, you know, it's 1950, and then 1956 is when there was a workshop at Dartmouth, and then the best minds in the country got together and tried to figure out what this field is and they coined the AI, you know, their artificial intelligence, you know, uh, name there. So it's been there. I, I like to say if it is a human, it's ready to uh, pick up social security and be on Medicare, you know, <laughs> right? That's great. Right. So, but it is different now. In the okay. good old days, we used to do domain knowledge and rule-based systems and other things. Now we are doing a lot with data because data is available, computers are available to process them. So it's a little different AI now than what we had before, but it still tries to address the same questions and so forth. But when, it, when you depend on data, it's very important that the data is, is appropriate, data is of high quality and so forth. Otherwise, we may run into issues. Awesome. Well, the book is called Can We Trust AI? And we do have a promo code for our listeners. HAI30 will get you 30% off of Can We Trust AI when you order from Hopkins Press. And to order, you just need to visit press.jhu.edu and enter the code when checking out. Dr. Shalapa, thank you for your time today. Sure do appreciate it. Thank you, Atria. I really enjoyed our conversation. So AI is only as good as the data it's processing, and history tells us that these powerful new technologies can and will be used for good and or for ill. Right, so the question is, how is it that we can all benefit from AI in the widest sense and also ensure that it's not just being controlled by a few giant tech companies? We certainly have to make sure that we get this right. We sure do. It's a topic I know we're going to return to again and again in the course of the Agents of Tech podcast. Now, an undeniable force for the good, apart from you, Audrey, is George Malarius from the University of Cambridge. He's an expert in bioelectronics and is developing devices implanted in the brain or spine to help people with neurological disorders. My colleague Thuy Vu caught up with him at the 50th anniversary of the Materials Research Society in San Francisco, California. George, thanks so much for being here with us. A pleasure. I'm so excited to talk to you. Tell us about the work your lab is doing in implantable devices. Yeah, so we work on uh, bioelectronics, which involves also devices that uh, are implanted uh, in the body, either uh, in the brain or the spinal cord or on peripheral nerves. And the idea is to understand uh, a bit about the biology of these organs but also try to help people who suffer from neurological disorders. Neurological disorders are the uh, single most uh, 
important factor in uh, disability today uh, worldwide, the leading cause of it. And uh, um, new technologies are desperately needed in order to help people who suffer from this condition. This is such important work. Um, can you share with us some more details about what are the specific applications of these organic electronic materials in biology? Yes. So it, it turns out organic electronic materials have the property of mixed conduction. That means they can conduct both ionic and electronic carriers. And as such, they are uh, ideally say, located at the interface between the world of biology, which uses ionic and molecular signals for its communication, and the world of electronics that is meant to handle electronic signals. So as a result, they can form that interface. They can transduce information from biology to electronics and vice versa, and are very useful in making our electronic technology talk to biology. Why would you say it's so important for people across science, engineering, and clinical care to all be involved in this research? Oh, it's a highly interdisciplinary endeavor. We work very closely with uh, clinicians and everything in between. So within the group, there are um, you know, physical scientists, engineers, and clinicians. And the uh, important thing is to identify the idea that excites everyone uh, sitting at the, the table. Often, as an engineer, I'd come up with an idea that would be very rapidly shut down by the clinician as not impactful or not important. And likewise, often clinicians would come up with an idea that is either way too boring to implement or physically impossible. So the, um, I guess the challenge is identifying the idea that excites everyone across the board and then pursuing that. And that's where we spend most of our time. We spend a lot of time talking and trying to um, uh, convey how we see this particular idea, this particular need from our own uh, vantage point um, and make sure everybody aligns and is excited and then, uh, then we go ahead and uh, proceed with this project. What are some of the greatest challenges you face in conducting this research? Well, the um, challenge is that it's a very, very long-term uh, endeavor. So to uh, see a device from conception, um, uh, lab testing, some in vivo testing, and then first in human, you're looking at several years of work. And at the same time, we have to engage with patients to uh, get their feedback very early on. And often the case is that the device will not be ready for the patients we engage with. We have to tell them that, look, this is very early stage research. It's not gonna be ready for you. It's not gonna be available for the clinic for another 10 years. And, and that's a hard thing um, to, to, to do. Where do you see the future of this technology going? What are your hopes for it? So the hopes are that uh, this will be an important uh, modality for treating a disease. If you look at uh, the way medicine works today, the different ways medicine works today, you have uh, pharmacological treatments. You have interventions such as surgery, radiotherapy, and then bioelectronic medicine is a new modality where you go into the body and add an electronic device that is pacing the, um, uh, an organ to achieve a certain function. And I hope that this concept will get extended 
uh, well beyond neurological uh, disease to become a major tool for addressing disease in, in general. Such fascinating work. Thank you Thank for doing you. what you do. George Maliares, thanks so much. Fascinating interview, really appreciate it. All right, next time we will be discussing software-defined vehicles, decarbonizing the automobile industry, and quantum transport systems and vehicles with experts at WCX World Congress, hosted in the historic heart of the American automotive industry, Detroit, Michigan. So until then, it's goodbye.